Okay. Is it on now? Hello? Says it should be on. Test. Hello? Is it on? Okay. Yeah, there it is. Yay. Okay, let's try that again. How's everyone doing today? <laughs> I'm uh, happy to say in terms of all the work I've put in that this is my last week for this session, but I'm also very unhappy and disappointed because I, I will miss you all, and I enjoy doing this. Um, but I'll come back as long as the invitation is open. Um, I found this quote up here, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. I'll let you take that where you want to take it. But today, I wanted to uh, focus on how we speak to power. And I couldn't help but think about when I was a kid, and of course, my father was a powerful figure in my life, as, as all fathers are, but he was even more because he was very... Um, authoritarian. Um, and I was very rebellious. You might just look at me and guess. <laughs> Still am. And actually, this little story is about my hair. I grew my hair long when I was in high school. And my father hated it. So my grandfather took me aside. To, speaking of power, my grandfather had a completely different kind of power over me. It was the power of love. When he said something to me, I knew he loved me, I'd do anything he said. He said, if it's easy to please your father by cutting your hair, cut your hair. It's just hair. So I did. And then when my father got home, I mean, I hated it. I hated it being short. I thought it looked stupid. So I'm standing in my room, and he comes in and sees my hair. He goes, oh, you cut your hair. And I'm like, yeah. Then he goes, could be shorter. <laughs> and here's where I learned this lesson in speaking to power. I had no power. I was a kid. I couldn't even move out yet. But I said to him, get out of my room. I did this for you. He got out. <laughs> I shut the door. And then my father being my father, he always had to think about stuff. He knocked on my door. A good while later, he knocked on my door. He came in. He said, you can wear your hair as long as you want. I'll never say anything again. And I did. <laughs> okay. But I never would have had that conversation with him. I never would have had that moment with him if I hadn't done what? I spoke up. I told him the truth. It hurt him. It made him wake up. Truth does that, doesn't it? Sometimes it does. First of all, I want to start, I'm actually kind of almost going in reverse in these talks. I'm going to give more context than I've given before. <laughs> but a lot of times, and, and up until maybe the 19th century or so, people thought that the Hebrew prophets were completely unique even though it says in the Bible that there were prophets in every nation, right? That the Egyptians had prophets, and the Amorites had prophets, the Hittites had prophets, the Mosquito Bites had... I'm just... <laughs> That's an old joke I got from a colleague of mine. Just throw Mosquito Bites into that list and see if anybody's paying attention. All right, so as we know, of course the Greeks had prophets. Tiresias being the most famous because he's in every play no matter what period... <laughs> He seems to be alive in everybody's life. And then even when he's not alive, Odysseus sees him in Hades. All right, so there is no religion on earth that doesn't have some sort of prophetic figures in it. But there's a difference between prophets, seers, and visionaries. All right, so they uh, by definition, they receive interpret divine messages and convey them to their surroundings. Their messages are usually influential the community and those are connected to the exercise of, our key word today, power. There are three relative terms. There's a nabi, which is a prophet. We, we use the word prophet from the Greek, the Septuagint, or Septuagint, 
prophetes, which means uh, the spokesperson for God. Roeh is a seer, which is a funny word anyway. You're a seer. And Jose, and you can see there's Hosea's name, a visionary. So some background. <clears throat> what has happened historically, of course, as you know, if you've read the Old Testament, and of course I'm assuming you, you're familiar with it, um, the, the story of uh, Israel begins in a tribal confederacy period, right? And God is their king, and they're not supposed to have a king. And so there's a period of what they call the judges. And the judges seem to be a combo platter of these things, plus judging. I mean, physio physiologically judging. So they would hear cases. Um, <clears throat> and that was a period, but we've moved into a period of the monarchy. And as you know, the Bible is not real clear about whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. When Saul is um, crowned king by Samuel, Samuel uh, hears from God, and God is like, well, I don't really want to give you a king, but I'm going to give you one because everybody wants one, but I should be your king. It doesn't go well for Saul. He actually, in terms of everything we're talking about, breaks all the rules. He doesn't keep to his responsibilities. He doesn't do exactly what God tells him to do. And Samuel eventually unanoints him. But we have the beginning of a sacred kingship that begins there and goes all the way through, as you know, to the <clears throat> the next king, David. So, first of all, prophets, prophetics, were kingmakers. That was their function. You can see they were a judge or a, a figure before, so it would make sense that they would be the one who crowns the king. So, in a sense, they're more powerful than the king. We still have this kind of structure in Islam, that you have a president of a country, but the ruler of the country truly is the imam. Um, so, <clears throat> Here's uh, where God makes his promise to David. I took you from the pastures, from following your sheep, that you should be prince over my people. I will assign a place for my people and plant them, dwell them in their own land, and be disturbed no more. When your time comes and you rest in your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. So a Davidic dynasty was set up. And as you know, the Davidic dynasty was set up, but it soon splits within another generation. All right, so there are different prophetic periods, and prophets have different roles in the different periods. The seer, judge, and kingmaker period was exemplified by Samuel and Nathan. Nathan's the prophet that walks in and corrects David after Bathsheba calls him out for his wrongdoings. And you can see that Nathan is, is often counted upon by David. We move into a second period of a visionary miracle worker, right? Elijah and Elisha, or Elijah and Elisha. But what we're talking about in this series is those who are called by God. And there's a difference here in the sense that there's specifically one of the things they write about is the call. I was minding my own business, God called me. Right? God's on the phone. There's an old joke about that, but I'm not going to get into it right now. Sometime I'll tell you the joke. It's about God, God calling the Pope. Anyway, <laughs> the rise of literacy calls, caused the disappearance of miracles and the emphasis on transposition among the prophets. So up until this time, seers, judges, kingmakers, visionaries, miracle workers, all would have ecstatic visions and things. You remember when Saul actually falls among the prophets and he starts, he starts ecstatically dancing around and even lies naked for quite a period of time, to where the people go, is he among the prophets? Is he a prophet or a king? We're mixed up. <laughs> but apparently the prophet, uh, he was prophet and king to some extent. <clears throat> and then we move into a period after our literary prophets where the prophets allied themselves with the priesthood. So the latter prophets begin to support the priesthood and support the centrality of Jerusalem. So if you ever wonder why did the prophets disappear, there you go. It, they became part of the institution. So the last prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, stressed the restoration of the temple, its cults, and the correct way of sacrifice. The priests started to consult again the Urum and the Thummim. We'll get into that as to what those are. And the prophecy becomes institutionalized. 
So by the time we get to the Maccabean period, which is the period between the, we call now between the two testaments, um, it becomes a matter of routine that the leader of the country is king and prophet. All right, to step back, during the time of Elijah and Elisha, they were both aristocratic origin. They didn't marry, and they seemed to have power over animals. They did not wear a common garment. They wore weird things, which we see in John the Baptist later on, right? Animal skins. Their miracles were the proof of their power, which makes sense because they're alive. They're, they're not being written down, right? These are things that are happening. What's going to happen with the literary prophets is they're going to write them down, and then we can see if it happens. And the miracles that they do show the preoccupations of their time. Miracles are about war, food, drinkable water, and curable diseases. So they do these kinds of things. All right, but the important thing is they have a marginalized status. They give up being aristocrats. They become this marginal figure who lives out away from the people and comes in to make corrections as needed. Remember the still small voice episode <laughs> where Elijah is being um, persecuted and he runs away and hears from God in, in the runaway spot. So this idea that the prophet lives out and then comes in. All right, so now we've moved into the period of literary prophets which we're talking about. They speak from the margins. All right, it's similar to uh, prophets in other places like Asher and Babylon. Uh, this is the wording of the person that I'm quoting here. Hosea married a whore. That was, that's cold. A prostitute, <laughs> uh, a sacred prostitute perhaps. Isaiah went around naked for a whole year. Jeremiah remained, Jeremiah remained unmarried. And um, the prophets exerted political influence. They seemed to have been consulted, especially in times of great distress. So when things go bad, who do you turn to? Not Ghostbusters, but the prophets. For example, Jeremiah's debate with Hananiah that we talked about last week. All right, so what happens is instead of miracles as proof, we end up with writing as proof, right? We end up with writing of books. Isaiah wrote on a tablet. Jeremiah had to write down the word of Yahweh into a book. We'll look at that. We'll focus on that later. Habakkuk announced judgment of the Chaldeans on boards. Zechariah saw a scroll flying, and as you remember, Ezekiel did what? Ate a scroll. <coughs> All right, and we see archaeological evidence shows that literacy was exponentially rising during this period. Everywhere, all throughout the Middle East. So still talking about this period. Like I said, the emphasis now is on the call. Amos, he says, and we're going to look at carefully at what he says uh, in detail, but uh, when he's questioned by a priest why he's speaking up against the king. He says, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a member of a prophetic brotherhood. I'm just a shepherd from Tekoa, and I take care of sycamore trees. He said, but God did what? Called me. God has said to choose prophets from among the so-called pagans or heathens. So we even get evidence that God is not picky, in terms of uh, he'll call any marginal person, even the prophet Balaam. And interestingly enough, we have this document up here, an actual documentation of the prophet Balaam, the book of Balaam. I don't know how much of the book they have, but it says up there in the little circle, <laughs> this is the book of Balaam. <clears throat> All right. And another thing that happens in the final period, the period after the literary prophets, is people begin to rely more on the Urim and the Thummim. Yes, and in fact, the earliest account we have of the Urim and the, Urim and the Thummim is actually from Hosea. It's in uh, Exodus, but people aren't quite sure whether that was kind of put in retro or actually there at the beginning. Okay, so what are they? They're basically 
uh, dice or something. They're close to something like dice. Kind of or yes, no. Anybody ever do like a yes, no thing? On those little pens, <laughs> push it and it says yes or no. It's kind of like that. And they were in, a, in the breastplate, and there's a lot of argument over exactly what was happening there. There's a breastplate with the urim and the thummim put in them, and there are 12 stones for the tribes of Israel, and it's over an ephod. I don't, that's like a different interpretation of ephod because Gideon has one, and it seems to be made of metal. David has one, it seems to be made of linen, and they consult this at various times. So they have this sort of uh, magical object. But the whole idea is it's perhaps that the person puts on special clothing before they do the, the casting of lots. This hung on, though. If you remember in the New Testament, when Book of Acts, Judas Iscariot is dead, the disciples need to pick a twelfth, right? They feel like there are 11 of us. That's not right. We have to have 12 because that's later on that's going to be the basis of a synagogue. With this idea, you have to have the 12 followers. So what do they do? They draw lots. All right, so we don't know what Urim and Thurim exactly mean. Some people think it means lights and perfections. It's element of the breastplate worn by the high priest. I already kind of went through all that, but there are the details. Okay, this is a conjecture of what they might have looked like. Um, they became, they, so during the rabbinical period, which is, um, you know, we're closing down the Old Testament, the canon is closing. The rabbinical period, they were trying to figure out, well, what's the relationship of the Urim and the Thurman related to the prophets? Do we listen to the prophets? Do we cast lots? What do we do? So they decided it's only permitted by prominent figures like army generals, senior court figures, and kings. And the questions have to be to the benefit of the people as a whole. Okay. But you can see this movement from powerful kingmakers, judges, significant figures, to part of the court, and then as that happens, more emphasis on the Urim and the Thummim, right? A reliance more and more upon casting lots and letting God speak through that. There are also different kinds of prophets at this time period. There were workers of signs and wonders, which we talked about. There were court prophets, and you hear the, uh, the prophets, the, the literary prophets, talk about the court prophets. Um, they were everywhere in the ancient Near East. And their task was basically to pronounce blessings in the state cult and secure success and prosperity, right? Their job wasn't to be a critic. What was their job to do? Support the government. It was uh, to these prophets that the kings turned on the eve of the campaign and important enterprises. But since their job is to support the government, how often do you think they said, this is a really stupid idea? The royal cult of the temple in Jerusalem was probably they who repeated the divine promises. So they would at least repeat that passage that was given to David about his responsibilities, the king's responsibilities. So they did have the job of reminding the king of his responsibilities. And there were cultic or professional prophets. These are, they were in sanctuaries all around the country and in Jerusalem, and they surprised oracles for a fee and tried in various ways to determine the will of God. So basically, street prophets, street oracles that you could pay for a fee, and sometimes you'll see in the texts that we have of the literary prophets how people will accuse them of being that. Or you're just trying to make money. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? You're not speaking the truth. You're just trying to make money. So you'll see Jeremiah or Isaiah saying, like, I, I'm not getting money on all of this. I'm not asking for money. So the writing prophets, what did they do? Well, I looked at a lot of the literature on this, and they, they said they don't have political motives in the sense that they don't, they're not politicians, and they don't suggest solutions. That would have been nice. But they, you know, other than what I talked about last week, like live a just life, big general solutions, but never something specific, like here should be our policy. They don't write policy. <coughs> But they have ethical, they, their drive is ethical. Are we doing the right thing is much more important to them as what is the specific policy. They have, in fact, they have a contempt for practical politics. Like that's the everyday stuff, the quid pro quo, the exchange of things, the win-win, the lose-lose. They're not interested in that. They're like, is this the right thing, right? It's always, is it ethical? 
So, in that sense, they're utopian. They're not practical. <clears throat> but they spoke. They said they had the ability to look into the future. They were initiated into the secret plans of Yahweh and knew what others did not know. At least that was their claim. So that made them actually more realistic because they weren't looking at the practical considerations and the day-to-day -day exchanges of power. They were looking at the bigger picture, right? What is right for the people? What is just? <clears throat> this is from uh, the author's name down there, Albrechtson, Bertolt Albrechtson. <clears throat> he says, from what we know, only about half of their prophecies came true. What the prophets all believed in is what has been called by, uh, I think it's Friedrich Weinrich, uh, the prophetic postulate. And the postulate is this. We have to know the historical conditions of what the prophets are saying. And the postulate is this. The political disasters are a punishment for the apostasy of kings and people, and the fear of Yahweh is the only way of rescue and defeat. So if things are going wrong, God's mad at us. That's the prophetic postulate. To get God unmad at us is to get our act together and return. It's contradicted by the brute facts because, of course, we know that there are physiological reasons for a lot of these things, economic reasons, political reasons for a lot of these things. So you can't always just blame it and say that God is punishing us. People use similar logic for things, disasters today. God is mad at us. And I'm like, hmm, I don't think that's the whole story because we do know there's some physiology. We do live in a physical world. But that was their point of view. And this is my favorite part. So what was their job? This sounds really familiar. Perhaps the difference between politician and prophet in Israel, this skip in Israel, was sometimes that rulers treated time-honored phrases of the royal ritual as venerable decorations. Right? They just acted like all the traditions and the culture and the past. The beliefs don't matter. I, what matters is me. I have power. The prophets, well, the prophets, the words were a reality. So, our quote for the day. The great prophets do not act as representatives of certain political groups. They do not foment rebellions. They do not conspire against the kings. They do not want to subvert the social order. Quite the opposite. They are the conscience of the state. I don't know about you, but I'm looking for these kind of people right now. Where are the prophets? All right. The other part of their job, as we know, we talked about this, protest injustice. And basically their premise was, if we don't speak up, who will? And their other premise was, God is holy and just, and if we're not, then we're not walking with God, are we? All right, so let's talk about speaking to power. Wow, that's easy to read. This is the line of uh, kings. And as you see, there's Saul, the first crowned king of Israel, the unified Israel. It's only unified for a short while, and then it um, splits to Jeroboam and Rehoboam. So then we end up with the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, Judah and Israel. You can see Israel ends before Judah. All right, so what we're going to look at specifically is Amos, who was speaking to Jeroboam II in the northern kingdom. We're going to look at Isaiah speaking to Ahaz. It's interesting. You know how we shorten names? How we cut off part of the name? It's called clipping in, in linguistics. It's interesting that Ahaz is Yehoahaz, which means God holds. But now it's just holds. <laughs> it's like Christopher, he took Chris off his name, so now he's just Topher. I carry. <laughs> All right, so Jeremiah and Yehoiakim. Yo 
so you can see Jehovah's name and his name as well. So let's look at Amos. I'm just going to look quickly at him because we don't have as much historically about, uh, you know, his book is shorter, there's less going on. <clears throat> he was not afraid to appear. Remember, he's the guy that says the thing I said. He wasn't afraid to appear at the time when crowds were gathered there to worship the golden calf with Jeroboam the first that set up a special temple. Wait a second. Who was Jeroboam the first? He's way up here. The first king of the northern kingdom. So they set up their own temple, right? Which made sense. Jerusalem would be the temple in the south, but they had to have their own temple. All right. So Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, which is where they had it at first. Bethel means the place of God, the, Be the place of El. Reported the kings to King Jeroboam, Amos has plotted against you within the house of Israel. I don't know. I kind of want to read that like the little punk kid that he is. Amos has plotted against you in the house of Israel. The land isn't able to cope with everything he's saying. Tattletale voice. And Amos said, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will be forced out of the land. What? That's a crazy thing to say to the king, isn't it? You're going to die by the sword, dude. And guess what? He does. Amaziah said to Amos, You who see things, go and run away to the land of Judah. I almost want to say this in the same kind of snarky voice, don't you? You who see things, go, run away to the land of Judah. Eat your bread there and prophesy there. Never again prophesy Bethel, for it's the king's holy place in his royal house. Stop messing with us. Right? Go down to Judah. They need it. Sounds familiar. And he said, I'm not a prophet. I'm not a prophet's son. I'm a shepherd, a trimmer of sycamore trees. But the Lord did what? Took me from the shepherding the flock. And the Lord said to me, go prophesy to my people, Israel. I, nobody really knows why he said that, plus I'm a shepherd. You're like, which one are you doing? Is it like summer work or winter work? <laughs> I looked at a few things and everybody's like, it seemed like a weird combination platter, but that's what he said. And I like the feel of it. I kind of want to say that to somebody. I'm a shepherd, a trimmer of sycamore trees. I, like, man, I do ordinary stuff. All right, so let's look at Isaiah. So we get the idea. Amos sets the whole thing up. He's the first one to do this. He's the first literary prophet. So he sets up this whole idea. What do you have to do? You just wander out and speak to the king. Now, it's, it's kind of not like now. It would be pretty hard to go speak to President Trump, right? It's, you can't just walk up. But back then, I mean, they lived pretty much like everyone else. So you could just go out in a pasture or somewhere that you knew they were going, and you could talk to them. <clears throat> in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, king Rezin of Aram, and king Pekah of Ramaliah of Israel went up to attack Jerusalem, but could not matter attack against it. They're like, okay, so what is that saying in short? There's been, there's a, there's a conspiracy of sort and they were trying to get Judah to join the conspiracy to rebel against Assyria. We'll get to that in a second. When the house of David heard that, so that's Ahaz, he's of the lineage of David, heard that Aram had allied itself with Ephraim, the heart, Ephraim would be uh, the northern kingdom, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Like I said, Ahaz means has held, ending the name Jehoahaz, God has held. So a little background. This is actually after Assyria takes over. But if you see right here, here's the northern kingdom. It's still the top of what we call the country of, of Israel. So what's happening here is Aram and Syria and the northern um, Samaria, as they would have called it then, are all going to fight the Assyrians. What do you think Isaiah is going to tell him to do? going to tell him to join the conspiracy? The Lord said to Isaiah, go out to Ahaz and your son, uh, you and your son, Shir Yashub, 
the end of the conduit at Upper Pool on Highway Fuller's Field, right? Just meet him along the highway. He tells him, take heed, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart faint because these two smoldering stumps of firebrands because, and then he kind of repeats the whole thing there who is about the rebellion. Don't be afraid. So then he says this. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. Details. If you do not stand firm in faith, you shall not stand at all. Just touched God. God's got it in his hands. He's saying, these guys are going to invade me. They asked me to be a part of the conspiracy, and when I said no, they declared war on me. By the way, within 65 years, the northern kingdom is gone. The Lord speaks directly to the king. That's interesting, isn't it? Ask a sign of the Lord your God, be it deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Interestingly enough, he shows some kind of uncharacteristic humility. He says, no, I'm not going to put God to the test. Then Isaiah says, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary mortals that you weary God also? God just told you, test me. And what did he say? Won't do that. Isaiah says, don't be an idiot. Therefore, the Lord will give you a sign. And this is a much under, misunderstood passage because it's quoted especially at this time of year. But in context, it means something completely different. Look, a young woman with child will bear a son, and she shall name him Emmanuel. And he shall eat curds and honey by the time he knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, which would be something like 12 years. Before, before the child knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, the land of those two kings are in dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring on you and your people and your ancestor house such days and not come since the day of Abraham departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So he's saying, basically, it's just a message. A woman is having a child. She's going to name him God with us. By the time he's old enough to learn good from evil, those guys are going to be gone. Get some perspective. So what happened? <laughs> Ahaz doesn't really listen. He goes to the king of Assyria. <laughs> These guys are trying to kill me. What do you think the king of Assyria is going to do? Because they're trying to kill me because I won't join a conspiracy against you. What's the king of Assyria going to do? His name is pretty famous in history. Tiglath-Pileser. Man, that is a cool name. I kind of wish that were my name. What's her name? Tiglath-Pileser. I want to say that. I'm going to use that in Starbucks. What's your name? Tiglath. <laughs> he sacked Damascus, annexed Aram, deported the population, executed Rezin, attacked Israel, took all of those cities. The most familiar to us would be Gilead and Galilee and Naphtali. Deported the people to Assyria. So he didn't take the entire uh, country, but he took significant pieces of it. It's in one of his inscriptions, so we have archaeological evidence. Yes, he did this. The appeal to Assyria met with stern opposition from the prophet Isaiah, who counseled Ahaz to, to rely upon the Lord and not outside aid. He said, don't do this. Don't make a deal with him. Just He's going to kill them anyway. Just be patient, right? And of course, what happened? They become a vassal but the trouble is, since what he did seemed to work and what Isaiah said didn't, then they thought the king was right. So he was right. He was free from the troubles from the neighboring rulers because they all got wiped out. <laughs> uh, but he also became, the country became a vassal to Assyria. And then it gets worse. He goes to Assyria. He's very impressed with Assyrian religion. So he brings back ideas and he actually changes the temple structure and puts different things in it. Now this is the temple of the northern kingdom, but it, the temple of worship now becomes pretty much like an Assyrian temple. How much things change. Ahaz has a son, Hezekiah. Have you heard of this guy? He's pretty famous biblically. They've unearthed, actually in Jerusalem, 
the seal of Hezekiah there. Notice the ankh, which is very interesting, and a bee. And the seal of Isaiah. The trouble is, the part that would have said Isaiah the prophet, gone. So it just says Isaiah. You're like, well, the two were together. <laughs> Must be. So Ahaz has a son, and Ahaz dies a natural death, so I guess in some ways he was right. The Assyrians are back. So this time what happens? Hezekiah doesn't start to try to make deals. He asks God for help. And who does he ask? Isaiah. Isaiah prophesied that the Assyrians would hear the Pharaoh Tirhakah was going to fight the Assyrians and return to Assyria. So he says, don't worry. He's just going to fight the Egyptians. He's going to get out of here. And Sennacherib, though the leader of the Assyrians, didn't exactly do that. He sent a letter to saying that he's going to go ahead and conquer Jerusalem while he's there. That was the trouble of being where they were. Yes, you have Assyria, countries Babylon in the north. Where do they go if they want to get into Egypt and get all that money and wealth in Egypt? Guess who's in the way? And is it easier to go through a country that resists you or that isn't a part of you or is it easier to just have a country be your vassal so you can just come and stay there? All right. And this is a really cool scene in the Bible and that Sennacherib actually comes to the outside of Jerusalem and speaks to them in Aramaic um, and says, you're doomed. You think you've got this great God. He's not going to help you. So, Isaiah tells them the Assyrian army will be destroyed. They're outside the gates. Does this take a lot of trust? They're outside, and the king is actually riding up in a chariot, taunting them. We have better gods. We have more army. You're doomed. And then something really strange happens. Oops. I just skipped the end. Go back. That night, the angel of the Lord struck the Assyrians, killing 185,000. Now, all numbers in the Bible, a little suspect. <laughs> because if you add up like the numbers that they report, that like not that many people lived in this whole area, that kind of thing. But at any rate, something happened, right? And whether you want to read it as the angel of the Lord or, you know, tomain poisoning or, you know, some, but something quick spread through the camp. And they were, they were gone. Sennacherib returns to Nineveh and was killed by two of his sons. As Isaiah said, it took 20 years, but he said it. Then a short time later, Hezekiah became mortally ill. He wept and prayed for recovery, and God told Isaiah, you're going to get 15 more years of life. All right, so, so far, what have we learned? If you're the king, what's the best plan? Listen to the prophet. You got 15 more years. I always thought that was cool, and then I thought, I don't really want to know. <laughs> you know. I'd be glad for the 15, but I'd be like, darn. But I know it's 15, but you'd be like, by the date? Is it like this date? <laughs> that year generally? <laughs> It'd make me nervous as a cat. All right, let's look at, at Jeremiah. Jeremiah would be the way he would say it or something like that. All right, this is the fourth year of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, the king of Judah. This word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. What's he doing? He's one of the written prophets, so what's he going to do? Yeah. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and the other Judah, and the other nations of the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah until now. So up until this point, uh, his earlier prophecies haven't been recorded. But this is the point where he's told, write them all down, everything you've said. I don't know about you, but I'd have a little trouble remembering that. But it was a different world back then, and people could memorize huge passages and, and 
people could listen to someone and repeat back to them what they said in an entirety because they knew how to do that sort of thing. Is that crazy? Yeah. One of the things that Plato said, we're going to lose memory. If we have writing, we will lose memory. Bingo. Now they make the same arguments about computers, and I'm like, yeah. Already happening. How much is your mathematical ability now? <laughs> All right. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster, I plan to inflict on them. In other words, put it all together in one book. So it's not those scattered, uh, we heard Yermaz say this, and he said that. So it's all focused for the first time. Now, wisely, it's going to have a release date. <laughs> There's a fasting day, and everybody's coming to Jerusalem for the fast. So, that's the day. There's only one problem. Because of things that he said, he's already been told he can't come to the temple. I'm like, hmm, do I hear echoes of this now? Get out of here, you fake news. That happened to him. Yes, I can't, I can't come into the temple. But you can, Baruch. <laughs> so they come up with a plan. He tells Baruch, read to them all the people you that come from the towns. Perhaps they'll be petitioned before the Lord and they will turn from their wicked ways. Okay, so Baruch does it. He finds an elevated spot so that everybody can hear him. I, it kills me that so much drawings from the Bible are like so cartoonish, but you know, what are you going to do? They're either cartoonish or medieval. I can't seem to find like Anyone out there, an artist, there you go. Do some decent drawings of biblical things. All right. So he did, every, did everything prophet told him to do. He read the words from the scroll. Baruch read the scroll of the people of the temples. Okay, we got it. How did they react? Okay, so basically the only people that hear at this point are some people from what we would call the cabinet, right? Somebody, a counselor of the king. So a guy named Micaiah, Micaiah, heard the words from the scroll. So he heard it, and he takes it to the royal palace, the secretary's room. So basically, he's taking it to what we would call the cabinet. And then it names who all these people are. Interesting that Zedekiah, the son of Hananiah, remember Hananiah, didn't think things didn't go well for him earlier. Okay, so he tells them everything that Baruch read. So they say, bring the scroll, tell Baruch to come here. Right? It's very interesting how they and, and sit down and read it to us. So they're not just going to take his word. We need to hear this for ourselves. This sounds pretty important. So Baruch read it to them, and then when they heard the words, they looked at each other in fear. We must report these words to the king. How do you think this is going to go? So far, the ministers are all like, yeah, we're in agreement. This is, this is important. We need to make some changes. Then they're smart enough to ask this question. Did Jeremiah, Jeremiah dictate it? At this point, they thought maybe it was Baruch's words, right? But let's just make sure. Where'd you get this? He's like, Jeremiah. They know he's been banned from the temple. He dictated these words to me. I wrote them in ink on the scroll. So we know we have the book of Jeremiah now because of his words. <laughs> Smart officials. You and Jeremiah go and hide. Don't let anybody know where you are. Like, this isn't going to bode well. They know the king, right? They're like, we know this is right. We know that there are good ideas here, but we also know the king. Now, let's back up historically. Jehoiakim is the son of Josiah. During Josiah's rule, the basic text of the book of Deuteronomy was discovered. We talked about this earlier. And he led a number of reforms, including destruction of the high places and efforts to centralize worship in Jerusalem. So he's known in the Old Testament, in the, in the Chronicles, and the Kings as a good king, right? Josiah's reforms. Basically, in, in a lot of ways, Josiah's reforms created uh, the, the state of Israel that is going to exist all the way through Jesus' time. Okay, so, good father, 
Let's see how it goes. So the king, so Elishama, the secretary, has it. The king sent Yehudi to get the scroll, and Yehudi brought it to, there's so many details in this. Isn't that amazing? And Yehudi's a great name, too. Maybe I'll use that at Starbucks. What's her name? Yehudi. And Yehudi brought it to the room of Elishama's secretary to read it to the king and all officials standing behind it. Okay, so we got a lot of detail here. More detail. It was the ninth month, and the king was sitting in the winter apartment with a fire burning in the fire pot in front of him. Important detail. So what does the king do? This is probably one of the most hideous scenes and most memorable scenes in the Old Testament. Whenever Yehudi had read three or four columns in the scroll, the king cut them off with a scribe's knife and threw them in the fire until the entire scroll was burnt. Wow. Talk about not having respect. <laughs> wow. I mean, even if you thought maybe Jeremiah was some kind of nut, the other people don't, right? The people that listened to him in Jerusalem, the people, the, the ministers, they're like, we need to take this guy seriously. So he's ignoring everybody. And he's burning this thing. The king and all his attendants who heard these words showed no fear. So he's got his lackeys standing around him. The other ones that thought that he needed to hear it are further out. They didn't tear their clothes. All right. So even some of them said, don't burn the scroll. He would not listen to them. Instead, the king commanded Yeramiel, the son of the king, blah, 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 to arrest Baruch the scribe and Jeremiah the prophet. But the Lord had done what? And as you might expect, Jeremiah's reaction. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Take another scroll and write on it all the words on the first scroll, which Joachim burn up. I'll prove it to you. I'll write it all again. And then he says, this is what the Lord says, you burned that scroll and said, why did you write that uh, on it that the king of Babylon would certainly come and destroy this land and wipe out both man and beast, which is going to happen actually. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, king of Judah. He will have no one to sit on the throne of David. His body will be thrown out and exposed to the heat of day and the frost at night. I will punish him and his children and his attendants for their wickedness. Not happy stuff. I will bring on them and those living in Jerusalem and the people of Judah every disaster I pronounce against them because they have not listened. So it's not just that he gets punished, the whole country gets punished. I don't know how fair that is in terms of the way we look at things today, but it's also a frightening, shaky reminder of the importance of the people in power doing the right thing, isn't it? Because who suffers when they don't? We do. So he dictates the book again and added some words. <laughs> I love that part. And added some stuff. All right. I'm already at two conclusions. We're doing great. All right. So a couple of quotes that I showed you before I want to remind you of. Sometimes rulers treated time-honored phrases of the royal ritual as venerable decorations. They didn't take their own jobs seriously. They didn't take their own job description seriously, what they were called to do in the first place. But to the prophets, it was a deep reality. Prophets aren't political. They are there to do what? To be the conscience of the state. So they're ethically focused, not on specific plans. So Ahaz is an example of a leader who loses confidence in the face of conflict. He's given a sign because he cannot hear good advice. Hezekiah is an example of a leader who's humble and seeks and listens to wise counsel. Joachim is an example of a leader who shows deep disregard for institution traditions of his country. He fails to listen to his own counselors. You can imagine what happens to him. Ahaz appeared to prevail over Isaiah's predictions and managed to survive the Assyrian takeover of the northern kingdom and force the country, but he forced the country to adopt elements of Assyrian religion. Maybe if he'd have listened, that wouldn't have happened either. 
Hezekiah undid a lot of what Ahaz had done and trusted in God, and Isaiah's counsel was granted 15 more years of life. Jehoiakim refused to listen to Jeremiah and had him jailed right after this the episode that we looked at. He showed disrespect for his own people's traditions and beliefs. He, appointed, he was appointed, actually, as king by Egypt when they came through once, because they would go north to take over the area. But then he changes his loyalty to Babylon, then back to Egypt, wishy-washy. What happens? He's killed by Nebuchadnezzar, and Jerusalem is destroyed. All right, so... Obviously, we don't live in a religious nation state. I know there are some people that say this is a Christian country, but I'm like, no, it's a secular country. Um, it has significant influence of Christianity, Judeo-Christian uh, beliefs in it, but no. So, how, But I think the principles of the prophets apply. So they reminded their leaders of their responsibilities to do what? Act justly. Respect, follow, and apply the values and principles of the society. To act in humility. To listen to good counsel. To lead for the good of all. And to act morally and set an example. Because you also find <coughs> that pretty much whatever the king does, that's kind of the way the country's going to go. You don't necessarily want it to be that way, but they're setting the tone, as they would say now. What else the prophets teach us, if leaders are not doing these things, then we're compelled to speak. And you don't have to be specifically qualified because you could say, with Amos, what? I'm no prophet. I'm no prophet's son. But God told me. <laughs> or just, I'm no prophet, no prophet's son. But listen, the truth is in front of you, my friend. Right? You could update it a little bit. And reality is going to check you. So, this is just my own opinion, but another thing that they're, supposed to, that they're trying to say is that the representatives of that religion uh, make no protest, then we kind of deserve what we get. If people don't speak up, does it matter if they listen when you speak up? Did it matter to Amos? Did it matter to Isaiah? Did it matter to Jeremiah? Never mind, they never listened to him. Did he shut up? No, he actually ended up going, being taken prisoner and taken to Egypt. And the country fell. <coughs> but he tried, and that's all your responsibility is, right? To say, not the reaction. So what would they say now? I think some might say something like this. This is from Jeff Flake in his final speech on the Senate floor from the other day. As the authoritative impulse reasserts itself globally, and global commitment to democracy seems to be on a somewhat shaky ground. I've been thinking a lot recently about American commitment to democracy, where it comes from, and how, if the circumstances were right, it might slip away. As we in America, during this moment of political dysfunction and upheaval, contemplate the hard-won conventions and norms of democracy, we must continually remind ourselves that none of this is permanent, that it must be fought for constantly. I find echoes of the great prophets right there, don't you? And I haven't agreed with everything Jeff Flake ever said. I don't agree with pretty much anything anybody ever said, everything they said. But I do think that this is pretty profound. And there are a lot of people speaking right now this similar speech. I think they're the prophets of today. That they're reminding us everything we have could be gone. I tell this to my students all the time. This country won't just stay free. The whole history of the world. There have been times when democracies... There were democracies in India. Do you know this? Some of them lasted a thousand years. Representative democracies. Do we know about them? No. Because they disappeared from the face of the planet. They made deals with monarchs. They made deals and they disappeared. They weren't just taken over. They blew up from the inside. I'm like, huh, a thousand years. That makes us look like amateur hours. So I tell my students, this has happened before. There have been experiments with this before. They're not here now. So what does that tell you? <laughs> okay, so I think the prophets are still alive. He's no prophet, no prophet's son, but I think he's saying some words that we need to hear. All right, thank you for coming and paying attention. Appreciate it.
Yeah, I've been studying that recently. I was amazed to find this. Indian republics, they call them. They, they were all over northern India. Some of them, uh, one of them, it was even I called the, the Sambhavi. I can't help but think of our, I can't help but uh -huh. think of our Roman Catholic friends for whom speaking to power has been so ignored for so long yeah. that they are truly, truly suffering from the lack. I think the, that's the important part of what I was talking about today. I, I don't think these prophets were perfect, and some of the things they said might have been a little uh, over the top, but they took that responsibility to speak, and they did, no matter who they were or what people said about them or even what the results were. I don't think I'd want to get thrown in a well like Jeremiah. He was, and finally somebody pulled him out, but he didn't know that. So there's a price to be paid for speaking, I think. I'd rather know that I spoke than not. <laughs> I know. It's a, uh, and of course, no, no never mind. I'm not getting into that. Yeah. yeah. Long before this guy. Oh, yeah. There have been prophets all along. Uh, and I think they're everywhere. I think they're all over the planet. Some of them are news reporters. Some of them are uh, ministers. Not often do they call themselves prophets, but I, I believe they're, they're everywhere. Some of them are just uh, politicians, and they're trying to make a change, a difference. I don't know. I think being familiar with these people causes us to hear what people are saying differently. And since I've been doing this series, I, I see more prophets in the world. You see them on television. You're like, wow, this is, you're in the tradition. You're trying to keep us in the, in the path, in, the, in, in something that makes sense, in a just world. I think like Van Jones, there are some people, you know, he's a news reporter, but he's doing some really important stuff. Some of the things that's going on is not necessarily caused by God. Yeah. Yet, in your presentation, a lot of the things, when the people didn't go along with what God said, he did things about it. Yeah, yeah. So some of the things that's happening today could be as a result of that. I know, and, and of course, historians and archaeologists find other reasons for these things to have happened, political reasons. But... Um, yeah, that's the story. The biblical story is, yeah, these are things could have been different if you'd have paid attention to to God and to the values that we're supposed to have as a culture. Yeah, and who knows? I, I think it's all of a piece, isn't it? I mean, economics, politics, and ethics, morality, it's all, it's all together. It's not like you can separate them. I think some people try to and say, well, you know, as long as we have a good economy. I'm like, um, at what price? Are we supposed to be optimistic or pessimistic today? <laughs> I told you last week, I, I wouldn't teach if I weren't optimistic. And my students keep me that way. My students remind me all the time that there are good people in the world and there are people who want to do good for others. Almost all of them say that, that they want to make a difference in this world. And it doesn't seem to matter what they look like or what they dress like or whatever. And they're idealistic and young, and I don't know how that's going to go for them. <laughs> but I do know um, I have hope. But I also am realistic enough to know, you know, we fell into a world war not that awful long ago over these same kind of issues that are happening now. It could happen again or not. And I think we could decide. So are the college kids today optimistic then? No. <laughs> Amazingly enough, no. <laughs> about their own lives, yeah. About their ability to make a difference on an individual level. But trust in politicians or trust in the government, oh, hell no. They don't have much of that. And in some ways, I don't blame them. But they're living in this kind of manufactured society that's all about how things look. Optics, as they call it now. And I don't blame them for being cynical. Because if it's about how things look and not about how things are, we're in real trouble. Aren't we? I hate that word, optics. 
this is bad optics. I'm like, it's bad ethically. It doesn't just look bad. You did bad. Right? I do appreciate what's-his-face, the guy that just got some time uh, that he just said, well, yeah, I did bad things, and now I'm going to take responsibility for it. I'm like, yay. Thanks again to Dr. Lloyd. Next week, sure. <laughs> Next week, um, Pastor Michael and Pastor Dave are going to talk on different translations of the Bible, how you can use them in your study, and the value of the different translations, ancient and modern. And then uh, the, the second week, I think that's the 23rd, Pastor Ben will be here, and he will start that topic that I promised you about answering questions, your questions. So again, the basket is up front. If you have questions, write them down. I'll get them to Pastor Michael and Ben. And uh, don't be shy. Following that, Carl Ralston will be here, and he'll start our study of the New Testament. I'll announce that, some of his topics, uh, in, in two weeks. So keep in mind, we've got an active winter coming. Don't hibernate.